Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, comedian and writer Jessica Eason tells us about her New York City no-underwear extravaganza disaster. I mean, I, I, I just said it, but I feel like sex in the city. I yes. think it steered me wrong. I think wow. it made me think that I could have sex all the time, and we all lived in the same Manhattan but they didn't live in the improv comedy world. There's no episodes of them with a bunch of nerdy white dudes. <laughs> no. I would love to see that episode where Samantha, I mean, that's a missed opportunity on their part where Samantha starts yes. taking an improv class and oh, suddenly yes. no one wants to have like have sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> or they all do. And she's like in a sea of comedy nerds. <laughs> yeah. And she suddenly loses her libido. She's like, I don't want to have sex. I don't know. It's really weird. <laughs> oh my God. They break her. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, 
everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Professor Douglas Linder. Professor Linder teaches law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is the author of the website Famous Trials and has written extensively on the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rebecca. Happy to be here. So can you start off by setting the stage for us? It's New York City. It's the turn of the century, height of the second industrial revolution. What is the garment factory scene like in New York City and who worked at these factories? Uh, New York City was the center of the garment industry in the United States. Uh, garment industry really has origins in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. That's where New York City was where most of the fabric was. So that was kind of a natural place for it to develop and took off in the Civil War when it produced all the uniforms for Civil War soldiers. And um, by the turn of the century, um, it was by far the largest industry in, in New York. It employed something like 45, 50% almost of all the industrial workers in the city. Um, a lot of the workers were immigrants, recent immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe, um, Italians and others as well, um, mostly Jewish, or at least a large percentage of the, the workforce was Jewish. Um, but New York City was where it was at. And in the 1900s, the garment district was was a huge industry. What is a shirt waist? Why was it all the rage of the time? Yeah, you don't see many of them around today, do you? Um, <laughs> no. The A shirt waist um, essentially takes its name from a shirt that a, a male might wear. It looks a bit like a male shirt. It has buttons down the front, uh, has a collar. Uh, it was tucked in to a skirt. Um, yeah, they, they came in many different types of fabrics and looks, but it was had this kind of shirt-like look. And it was, it was kind of an emblem of um, independence almost for women at the time. It's sort of, uh, uh, we're in the workforce now, and this is the way we want to look. So it, um, it, it was just a tremendously popular garment, especially uh, about the time leading up to the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Now, can you tell us more about the actual Triangle Shirtwaist factory? Where um, was it located? How large was it? Who were the owners? Uh, the shirt, Triangle Shirtwaist factory was located in New York City, uh, just off Washington Park, for people who know where that might be. Um, it was in a building called the Ash Building, which is a 10-story building. And the uh, Shirtwaist factory occupied the top three floors. So it was in the eighth, ninth, and 10th floors of the Ash Building. Um, and um, essentially what you had were 300 foot by 100 foot rooms, 1,000, uh, 10,000 feet. So it, if it, you know, it had been a foot greater in area, it would have required an additional staircase. So everybody's trying to cut costs. Um, additional staircase would have been a helpful thing. Um, but being just wow. 10,000 feet, it, it didn't have to have that. Uh, so each floor was 10,000 feet. Um, the lower floor, uh, eighth floor of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is mainly a cutting area. Patterns were kept there. Uh, ninth floor is where most of the sewing was done. And the 10th floor was kind of the business floor. That's where the accountants were. That's where the, the two owners 
kept their offices um, and uh, you know num number of the other uh, aspects of the business were run. What were conditions at work like for garment workers? Um, specifically, what was it like for those who worked at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory? Um, well, conditions were not good, as you might, you might imagine. Yeah. Um, I mean, primarily, uh, there were 600 employees at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Most of them were women. Uh, most of them between the ages of, say, 15 and 30 or so. Um, they they um, were sometimes subject to sexual harassment. They worked long hours, you know, 52 hours had recently been established as the maximum working week, but th that was kind of the standard. Um, and, um, you know, they, they um, you know, had rather poor conditions. They were stuck in on these uh, tables working with very little time for breaks. Uh, so, you know, you, by no means were these great conditions. On the other hand, it did provide some income. And, um, you know, that's what everybody was looking for at that time, especially women, where a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of businesses were just foreclosed to uh, opportunities for women. So garment industry is one place where they could go. And now, uh, just before the fire, uh, New York uh, shirtwaist factory workers had gone on strike in 1909. Right. What changes were they fighting for and were they able to make any significant gains uh, in, in the labor, labor movement during the strike? Uh, well, the, the, the strike was over... Uh, Excessive working hours was one of the big factors. I mean, it, it, before 1909, the, the standard was more like 60 hours a week, which doesn't leave a lot of time for family wow. and, and other activities. Um, they were also paid very poorly, of course. Um, and, you know, they had concerns about, you know, as I mentioned, the levels of sexual harassment, other things that were going on. So they, they were bargaining for a lot of things. Um, they did succeed in getting the maximum working hours reduced for 60 to 52. They got about a 15% or so increase in their wages, still kind of a pittance, but it's at least it's more, more of a pittance. Um, and um, so there, there was some improvement at that time. They, they, generally, they, um, the, the owners originally wanted to come down hard on these strikers. They, they, there were physical assaults, other things going on. Uh, but the public, for the most part in New York City, sided with labor in this one. And I think the public pressure really forced um, the owners of these factories to uh, reach some sort of an agreement here. And had any of the changes been, um, it sounds like it was more financial, uh, the, the, what, what they were fighting for and, and, and for better hours. Were any of, of the things they were asking for... Uh, having to do with any of safety issues in the workplace? Well, um, they probably weren't at the forefront of the negotiations. I think they were looking more out for their economic interests. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly possible that some safety issues were raised in those negotiations. I don't think they became part of the final bargaining agreement, though. Can you walk us through the events that occurred on March 25th, 1911? Where did the fire start? And those who first noticed it, what did they do? Uh, well, we're at 4.45 in the afternoon. So we're about 15 minutes from closing time. Um, and we're in the 
cutting room of the eighth floor. Um, and between these long cutting tables were piles of fabric, huge piles of fabric, discards and of various sorts, rags. Um, and in, into that pile, apparently, it's certainly the best guess, uh, a match was thrown. Um, now, there was not supposed to be any cigarette smoking in the factory, but all the reports indicated that smoking was very commonplace and, and certainly matches thrown matches from cigarette smokers was one of the leading causes of fire at the at the time so that was probably the cause um the fire takes off um attempts are made to dump pails of water on it um unsuccessfully it keeps spreading it spreads to the cutting tables um, themselves spreads to floors some of the patterns that are hanging on that floor so it it, it becomes a uh, inferno and in not not too much time. So obviously you have a lot of panicked workers. There's more than 200 workers on the floor rushing for available exits. Um, there were basically three ways um, to get out. I mean, there were elevators, um, and there was a um, a door leading to a fire escape, um, and then there was a door leading to uh, two, actually two doors leading to stairways. One of the doorways was completely cut off by fire. So that wasn't an option. So you had these eighth floor workers rushing down this very narrow fire escape. Um, and a lot of them survived that way. Others taking the elevator, which continued to operate for a while um, and some making it uh, throughout the, the, the other stairway. Now, we spent a lot of time in our initial episode just in shock that the fire hoses were not connected to a water source. Why was this the case? Well, I mean, I don't know if there's a good answer to that. I mean, obviously, you'd wanted to. They've had a couple of fires previously at the, at the Triangle Shirtways Fire uh, Factory, so you'd think they'd be you know, anxious to uh, deal with a fire should one break out, uh, but they didn't have fire drills. There were no required fire drills at the time in the city of New York. Um, and um, if you look overall at the business, everything that was possible in terms of saving money was done. Done, And, you know, if you're taking time off of work to have a fire drill, test things, I mean, um, that's, that's not something they probably wanted to do. Now, there were multiple errors in communicating the emergency up to the switchboard operator and uh, getting help. What what were this, these series of miscommunications and, and, and why did they happen? Well, so the fire breaks out in the eighth floor. Um, they're the ones that are aware of the fire first, obviously. So the switchboard um, operator frantically calls the 10th floor, which is the kind of the business center again of the factory and gets a hold of people up there and says, wow, we've got a fire here on the eighth floor. You better do something immediately. Try and escape if you possibly can. Then she dials the ninth floor and no one picks up. It's just, uh, you know, whether it's it's possible that there are already signs of the fire and people were screwing around and there was nobody to pick up the phone. But for whatever reason, um, she never made contact at that time with anyone on the ninth floor. So uh, what happens um, after the 10th floor is contacted is that um, those workers um, see most of their paths cut off from escape with the fire raging down below. 
They do have access, however, to a roof. Um, and what happens is that this factory is conveniently, as it turns out, or fortunately, as it turns out, is located right next to the NYU Law School. There's a law school class going on. The professor looks out the window and sees these people, you know, scurrying around on the roof frantically, looking hysterical. Um, and it turned out that there had just been a painting job done in the NYU Law School, and there's some ladders, painters' ladders left, left there, and so uh, a number of the students went up to the floor, top floor of the, of the law school or, and, and um, put a ladder at an angle so that people could climb from the Triangle Shirtwaist factory roof into the safety of the NYU building, which is what saved um, at least 145 people. So if you're looking for wow. heroes in this whole episode, um, you can <laughs> credit the professor and the NYU law students for helping save virtually everybody from the 10th floor. The only person they lost was the last person. Uh, her hair by that time was on fire and she was unconscious and she was dragged up but didn't survive. So there was only one casualty on that 10th floor. Wow. Uh, the real tragedy, of course, was the ninth floor, the floor in between. They had no roof access. Um, the, you know, the, the fire there came a little later. By that time, um, the, there was just no access through one of the stairways. Um, there was some access for a limited period of time down an elevator. Uh, but, you know, people were cramming into this elevator and people were jumping under the cables and on top of the elevator it was going down. And eventually, under the weight of that, the elevator ceases to operate. So if you weren't mm. on that last elevator ride down, um, your only access was through one other door that uh, that could have provided a means of escape. Uh, and the big tragedy of the Triangle Shirtways fire is that that door was locked. Wow. Now, why were was that stairwell, why was that door locked? What was the reasoning for this? Um, well, of course, that's one of the big questions. It becomes a big question in the trial that, that follows this case. But um, there is certainly uh, some evidence to suggest that the two owners of the uh, plant, or um, Max uh, Blank and Isaac Harris, uh, were obsessed with employee theft. They were worried that some of the workers might walk off with shirtwaists or something else from the factory. Um, even though there's very little history of that in the in the plant, maybe you know twenty five fifty dollars worth of goods stolen over a period of time, not much at all. Uh, but by having everybody leave through one stairway rather than two, they could kind of check people on the way out, make sure they didn't or carry anything with them, or be a better deterrent to carrying things with them. So that is certainly the leading theory as to why the door might have been locked. Um, but you know whether the door was locked, there's still some dispute about that. Obviously, the defense argued heavily that the door was not actually locked, uh, despite the testimony of a lot of women uh, who tried that door. Now, the building did have fi a fire escape. Yes. Why did it fail to save people? Well, uh, a fire escape is supposed to come down to a solid footing. Uh, unfortunately, this fire escape led to the top of a skylight. Uh, not the best place for a bunch of people to be 
piling down onto. And eventually that collapsed and with it, the fire escape became not an option anymore. The fire escape essentially collapsed. Even as the, the fire raged on, two elevator operators continued to risk their lives in an effort to try and save people. How, how did they do this and how many people were they able to save? Um, well, yeah, the exact number is hard to tell because people were you know, escaping through different routes, but uh, probably over well over 100 people um, were able to make it down the elevators. Um, so... Um, that, you know, if you combine the lives saved by the law school through its efforts and the elevator operators, I mean, there uh, you know, most of the 600 workers were able to survive. So, you know, there are stories of heroes here and the elevator operators are certainly among them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. Now, uh, once the fire department arrived, yeah. how did they try and take control of the situation? Were they properly equipped to deal with this emergency? Um, well, yeah, the, there were a lot of fires in New York City. It was, it was, New York City was 
Uh, and the United States had, you know, just incredible problems with fire at this time because you had a lot of wooden construction. Um, mm. You know, compared to Europe, there are probably a hundred times more fires in the United States than Europe. And it's just it's, fire was just a big, big, big problem. Um, and um, so the fire departments were ready. Um, not too far away, they arrived relatively promptly. Got ladders up again, climbing up uh, the stairs up towards the fire source there on the eighth floor. Um, when they got to the ninth floor, by the way, they had they had to hack their way through the door, which of course supports the argument that the door was indeed locked. But they were able to get control of the fire um, probably within eighteen minutes of it breaking out. So this all takes place in a a pretty confined period of time. And uh, within a half an hour, it was really all over. Now, what were some of the witness accounts of those who just happened to be walking by the building at, at the time of the fire? What what did they see? Well, they saw, uh, of course, smoke and flames billowing out of windows, but uh, the, the sight that's, I'm sure, hard for a lot of them to get out of their mind was the sight of... Uh, a lot of young women, girls even, uh, jumping out of the ninth floor windows uh, to the street below, um, faced with the choice of, you know, burning alive in that inferno or taking a leap to their death. Uh, and a lot of them chose to, to leap. Others seemed to kind of frozen in place and, and just were burned where they were there on the ninth floor. How how many people ended up losing uh, their lives uh, during this tragedy? So there's 146 uh, that that died in this fire. Uh, 145 uh, from the ninth floor, one from the tenth floor, and everyone on that eighth floor survived. Wow. Um. What so, what was the identity? Yeah, go on. So, I mean, it does show how important that locked door was. Yes. I, I I for some reason didn't realize that it was the the one of the floors that had no fire to begin with that was right. really the ones that they were trapped. Um, what was the identification process like for those who who died in the fire? How did authorities handle families searching for missing loved ones? Well, there was a nearby uh, morgue area set up and. Um, all the bodies were kind of laid out there for uh, people to come and identify their daughters or mothers or brothers or whoever it is that happened to be working there at the at the factory. Um, it obviously, uh, uh, hit some immigrant communities especially hard because you know there's just a lot of Italian families and Jewish families in the neighborhood that had workers there. Probably you know almost all of those families were touched in some way. Um, so a tremendous crowded gathered and 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 of course these people had the you know the the terrible task of kind of braiding by all these bodies looking for their loved one uh, to identify now within hours of the fire an event, an investigation uh, was started looking into the cause of the fire what what did investigators find who did they initially blame well um I mean, they never identified the person who threw the match, assuming that was the source of the uh, fire. And, uh, you know, that person is unlikely to step forward and say, well, it was me. Um, 
So that that didn't happen. Um, they did point to uh, a particular area between cutting table one and cutting table two there in the eighth floor where all of these fabrics and and uh, uh, rags and so on were, were piled up. And there was also some oil cans located nearby, which could have fueled the fire as well. Uh, that's where it started. Uh, and then looking at other problems, they identified as we talked about the, the collapsed fire escape, which uh, wasn't uh, well situated. Um, the problem of the locked door, of course, was the, the key problem. Um, and uh, you know certain other uh, problems, for example, not really enforcing what should have been a no smoking policy. Uh, now, eventually, the, the owners of the building were brought to trial. What were they charged with, and and what was their trial like? Uh, well, they were uh, you know, Blank and and Harris were indicted about two weeks after the fire. Um, they were charged with manslaughter, um, and essentially. Uh, what that means uh, is that they were in, not intending the death of of uh, any of their workers, of course, but their actions resulted in the death of their workers. And what the DA's office, prosecutors have to prove in a case like this, um, in this particular case, is one, that the door was locked on the ninth floor and that that was the cause of at least one death, and certainly a lot more, but they had to prove it was cause of at least one death to make the manslaughter charge. Um, and critically, that the owners knew or should have known that the door was locked. So um, those are the, the things that the prosecution would have to prove to get a conviction in that case. Were they ever convicted? Uh, who were, were those at fault ever brought to justice? No, what happened in the trial is, of course, the prosecution introduced uh, evidence from a number of witnesses, uh, some of them from the ninth floor, who said, you know, look, we tried this door, we were desperate, and it couldn't open, it was just, you know, uh, banging on it, and, and so on, and, and some of those people, like, there's a girl named Katie Weiner, who was the last one to kind of throw herself on top of the elevator, dragging, uh, catching the cables, and was going down in that last... When she was one of the witnesses and, and others as well. Um, so they made a pretty strong case that the door was locked. They also um, you know, presented some evidence of the owners being really obsessed with this possibility of employee theft. Um, and the on the other hand, the, the defense was that, well, the door isn't locked all the time. We they had some testimony from various salespeople and uh, you know, other people that might have come to the company at one time or another and said, well, we got in through that door, so it couldn't have been locked all the time. Um, and um, the most questionable testimony was from a couple of two witnesses who basically said, yeah, we tried that door when the fire broke out and it was fine, right? We just looked out the door and it was too, it was too much, there was too much flame. We, we, we didn't go. Um, now that testimony is just inconsistent with all of these other witnesses who were there. Um, it, it strongly suspected that that was perjured testimony to kind of, um, you know, confuse the jury a little bit, hopefully give them some reasonable doubt about whether the door was really locked or not locked. Um, so, you know, that was certainly part of the defense, as well as the what they were really hanging their hat on, so to speak, was that the jury would not believe that they knew for sure that the door was locked or that they had not mm. ordered the door to be locked. 
And uh, that was the hardest thing for the prosecution to try and prove, because you're trying to prove the state of mind of somebody, right? Um, and he, they're certainly not going to volunteer that they locked it that morning or they told somebody to lock it that morning. Um, so you have to draw inferences, and sometimes that's hard. And what happened in the end was that the jury said, well, yeah, we agreed that the door was locked. I mean, we came to that conclusion. But we really had some doubts about whether the owners knew that it was locked. So we couldn't convict them. Um, mm. And so the jury ends up acquitting the two owners of manslaughter. Wow. Now, did, were the families of the victims ever compensated? Uh, I know that there was some insurance uh, money that was paid out. Uh, did they ever receive any of these funds? Well, there were some civil suits brought by some of the victims' families, um, but the payouts were not big. Uh, the average about seventy five dollars per death. Um, kind of a small consolation for someone who's lost a loved one, to be sure. Um, and that that was it. I mean, but the fire did have at least one major positive consequence, and that it was um, a commission was established to look into this fire in particular and, and look forward to preventing future fires. And it came out with a series of recommendations. Uh, and a lot of those were adopted. The, the New York uh, labor laws were um, substantially reformed in the years between 1911 and 1914. Some 36 changes made to the building codes to prevent these kinds of disasters from occurring in the future, uh, including uh, everything from uh, how uh, fire escapes have to be situated and tested, fire drills have to be conducted, um, no smoking bans, more you know, rigidly enforced. Um, whole whole series of uh, rubbish rubbish removal on a regular basis, because you know that was one of the causes. So um, yeah, there was uh, a lot of changes made, and uh, you know, possibly you'll never know for sure. Um, Triangle Shirtwaist fire prevented some other disaster that could have occurred in the future. Now we ask all of our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, who or what would that be? Greed. I suppose you blame greed um, because, uh, you know, so many of the considerations that were made um, here that led to the fire were made to increase profit to avoid having that floor space be a couple feet wider when the building was constructed so that it would have required an extra staircase um, to avoid the cost of concrete floors or other kinds of floors. Um, if the, the building had been even a, a, an extra story taller, they wouldn't have been able to have uh, wood trim and, and uh, uh, a number of the other things that this building had, the construction would have had to have been different. So, um, you know, what you found then with the, the, the tightly compacted tables of the number of workers that were crammed into that space, you know, all of those things certainly contributed to the tragedy here. And it's possible also, of course, that the, the greed of the owners and trying to prevent some small amount of employee theft, you know, led to the decision to lock the door. That's not something that we can say with an absolute certainty, but it certainly 
uh, strongly suspected in this case. So greed, um, secondly, I suppose cigarette smoking, never a good <laughs> idea. Doug, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today and shedding all of this light on this uh, terrible disaster. Okay, my pleasure, Rebecca. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash The Alarmist. Stay tuned because next week we will be discussing The Day the Music Died. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.